Chapter Fifteen of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gambler by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by C. J. Hogarth. Chapter Fifteen. I remember too how, without moving from her place or changing her attitude, she gazed into my face. I have won two hundred thousand francs," cried I, as I pulled out my last sheaf of banknotes. The pile of paper currency occupied the whole table. I could not withdraw my eyes from it. Consequently, for a moment or two, Polina escaped my mind. Then I set myself to arrange the pile in order, and to sort the notes, and to mass the gold in a separate heap. That done, I left everything where it lay, and proceeded to pace the room with rapid strides, as I lost myself in thought. Then I darted to the table once more, and began to recount the money. Until all of a sudden, as though I had remembered something, I rushed to the door, and closed and double-locked it. Finally I came to a meditative halt before my little trunk. "'Shall I put the money there until to-morrow?' I asked, turning sharply round to Polina, as the recollection of her returned to me. She was still in her old place, still making not a sound, yet her eyes had followed every one of my movements. Somehow in her face there was a strange expression, an expression which I did not like. I think that I shall not be wrong if I say that it indicated sheer hatred. Impulsively I approached her. "'Polina,' I said, "'here are twenty-five thousand florins, fifty thousand francs, or more. Take them and to-morrow throw them in de Griers's face." She returned no answer. "'Or, if you should prefer,' I continued, "'let me take them to him myself to-morrow. Yes, early to-morrow morning. Shall I?' Then all at once she burst out laughing, and laughed for a long while. With astonishment and a feeling of offence I gazed at her. Her laughter was too like the derisive merriment which she had so often indulged in of late merriment which had broken forth always at the time of my most passionate explanations. At length she ceased, and frowned at me from under her eyebrows. "'I am not going to take your money,' she said contemptuously. "'Why not?' I cried. "'Why not, Polina? Because I am not in the habit of receiving money for nothing. But I am offering it to you as a friend, in the same way I would offer you my very life.' Upon this, she threw me a long, questioning glance, as though she were seeking to probe me to the depths. "'You are giving too much for me,' she remarked with a smile. "'The beloved of de Griers is not worth fifty thousand francs.' "'Oh, Polina, how can you speak so?' I exclaimed reproachfully. "'Am I de Griers?' "'You?' she cried, with her eyes suddenly flashing. "'Why, I hate you. Yes, yes, I hate you. I love you no more than I do de Griers.' Then she buried her face in her hands, and relapsed into hysterics. I darted to her side. Somehow I had an intuition of something having happened to her which had nothing to do with myself. She was like a person temporarily insane. "'Buy me, would you? Would you? Would you buy me for fifty thousand francs as de Griers did?' She gasped between her convulsive sobs. I clasped her in my arms, kissed her hands and feet, and fell upon my knees before her. Presently the hysterical fit passed away, and, laying her hands upon my shoulders, she gazed for a while into my face as though trying to read it. Something I said to her, but it was clear that she did not hear it. Her face looked so dark and despondent that I began to fear for her reason. At length she drew me towards herself. 
a trustful smile playing over her features, and then as suddenly she pushed me away again as she eyed me dimly. Finally she threw herself upon me in an embrace. "'Do you love me?' she said. "'Do you? You who were willing even to quarrel with the Baron at my bidding?' Then she laughed—laughed as though something dear but laughable had recurred to her memory. Yes, she laughed and wept at the same time. What was I to do? I was like a man in a fever. I remember that she began to say something to me, though what I do not know since she spoke with a feverish lisp, as though she were trying to tell me something very quickly. At intervals, too, she would break off into the smile which I was beginning to dread. No, no, she kept repeating. You are my dear one. You are the man I trust. Again she laid her hands upon my shoulders, and again she gazed at me as she reiterated, You love me. You love me? Will you always love me? I could not take my eyes off her. Never before had I seen her in this mood of humility and affection. True, the mood was the outcome of hysteria, but— All of a sudden she noticed my ardent gaze, and smiled slightly. The next moment, for no apparent reason, she began to talk of Astley. She continued talking and talking about him, but I could not make out all she said more particularly when she was endeavouring to tell me of something or other which had happened recently. On the whole she appeared to be laughing at Astley, for she kept repeating that he was waiting for her, and did I know whether even at that moment he was not standing beneath the window. "'Yes, yes, he is there,' she said. "'Open the window, and see if he is not.' She pushed me in that direction. Yet no sooner did I make a movement to obey her behest than she burst into laughter and I remained beside her, and she embraced me. "'Shall we go away to-morrow?' presently she asked, as though some disturbing thought had recurred to her recollection. "'How would it be if we were to try and overtake Grandmamma? I think we should do so at Berlin. And what think you she would have to say to us when we caught her up, and her eyes first lit upon us? What, too, about Mr. Astley? He would not leap from the Schlangenberg for my sake? No, of that I am very sure.' and she laughed. "'Do you know where he is going next year? He says he intends to go to the North Pole for scientific investigations, and has invited me to go with him.' <laughs> he also says that we Russians know nothing, can do nothing, without European help. But he is a good fellow all the same. For instance, he does not blame the General in the matter, but declares that Mademoiselle Blanche, that love—but no, I do not know, I do not know. She stopped suddenly, as though she had said her say, and was feeling bewildered. "'What poor creatures these people are! How sorry I am for them, and for Grandmamma! But when are you going to kill de Griers? Surely you do not intend actually to murder him? You fool! Do you suppose that I should allow you to fight de Griers? Nor shall you kill the Baron?' Here she burst out laughing. "'How absurd you looked, when you were talking to the Birmingham's! I was watching you all the time, watching you from where I was sitting, and how unwilling you were to go when I sent you. Oh, how I laughed and laughed! Then she kissed and embraced me again. Again she pressed her face to mine with tender passion, yet I neither saw nor heard her, for my head was in a whirl. It must have been about seven o'clock in the morning when I awoke. Daylight had come, and Polina was sitting by my side, a strange expression on her face, as though she had seen a vision and was unable to collect her thoughts. She too had just awoken, and was now staring at the money on the table. My head ached. It felt heavy. 
I attempted to take Polina's hand, but she pushed me from her and leapt from the sofa. The dawn was full of mist, for rain had fallen, yet she moved to the window, opened it, and, leaning her elbows upon the window-sill, thrust out her head and shoulders to take the air. In this position did she remain for several minutes, without ever looking round at me, or listening to what I was saying. Into my head there came the uneasy thought, what is to happen now? How is it all to end? Suddenly Polina rose from the window, approached the table, and, looking at me with an expression of infinite aversion, said with lips which quivered with anger, "'Well, are you going to hand me over my fifty thousand francs?' "'Polina, you say that again, again?' I exclaimed. "'You have changed your mind, then. <laughs> you are sorry you ever promised them?' On the table where the previous night I had counted the money there still was lying the packet of twenty-five thousand florins. I handed it to her. "'The francs are mine, then, are they? They are mine?' she inquired viciously, as she balanced the money in her hands. "'Yes, they have always been yours,' I said. "'Then take your fifty thousand francs,' and she hurled them full in my face. The packet burst as she did so, and the floor became strewed with banknotes. The instant that the deed was done she rushed from the room. At that moment she cannot have been in her right mind. Yet what was the cause of her temporary aberration I cannot say. For a month past she had been unwell. Yet what had brought about this present condition of mind, above all things, this outburst? Had it come of wounded pride? Had it come of despair over her decision to come to me? Had it come of the fact that, presuming too much of my good fortune, I had seemed to be intending to desert her, even as de Griers had done, when once I had given her the fifty thousand francs? But on my honour I had never cherished any such intention. What was at fault, I think, was her own pride, which kept urging her not to trust me, but rather to insult me, even though she had not realised the fact. In her eyes I corresponded to de Griers and therefore had been condemned for a fault not wholly my own. Her mood of late had been a sort of delirium, a sort of light-headedness. That I knew full well. Yet never had I sufficiently taken it into consideration. Perhaps she would not pardon me now? Ah, but this was the present. What about the future? Her delirium and sickness were not likely to make her forget what she had done in bringing me de Griers' letter. No, she must have known what she was doing when she brought it. Somehow I contrived to stuff the pile of notes and gold under the bed, to cover them over, and then to leave the room some ten minutes after Polina. I felt sure that she had returned to her own room. Wherefore I intended quietly to follow her, and to ask the nursemaid aid, who opened the door, how her mistress was. Judge, therefore, of my surprise when meeting the domestic on the stairs, she informed me that Polina had not yet returned and that she, the domestic, was at that moment on her way to my room in quest of her. "'Mademoiselle left me but ten minutes ago,' I said. "'What can have become of her?' The nursemaid looked at me reproachfully. Already sundry rumours were flying about the hotel. Both in the office of the commissionaire and in that of the landlord it was whispered that, at seven o'clock that morning, the Fraulein had left the hotel, and set off, despite the rain, in the direction of the Hôtel d'Angleterre. From words and hints let fall I could see that the fact of Polina having spent the night in my room was now public property. Also, 
sundry rumors were circulating concerning the general's family affairs. It was known that last night he had gone out of his mind, and paraded the hotel in tears. Also that the old lady who had arrived was his mother, and that she had come from Russia on purpose to forbid her son's marriage with Mademoiselle de Comuget, as well as to cut him out of her will if he should disobey her. Also that because he had disobeyed her, she had squandered all her money at roulette, in order to have nothing more to leave to him. "'Oh, these Russians!' exclaimed the landlord, with an angry toss of the head, while the bystanders laughed and the clerk betook himself to his accounts. Also, every one had learnt about my winnings. Carl, the corridor lackey, was the first to congratulate me. But with these folk I had nothing to do. My business was to set off at full speed to the Hôtel Angleterre. As yet it was early for Mr. Astley to receive visitors. But as soon as he learnt that it was I who had arrived, he came out into the corridor to meet me, and stood looking at me in silence with his steel-gray eyes as he waited to hear what I had to say. I inquired after Polina. "'She is ill,' he replied, still looking at me with his direct, unwavering gaze. "'And she is in your rooms?' "'Yes, she is in my rooms.' "'Then you are minded to keep her there?' "'Yes, I am minded to keep her there.' "'But, Mr. Astley, that will raise a scandal. It ought not to be allowed. Besides, she is very ill. Perhaps you had not remarked that?' "'Yes, I have. It was I who told you about it. Had she not been ill, she would not have gone and spent the night with you.' "'Then you know all about it?' "'Yes. For last night she was to have accompanied me to the house of a relative of mine. Unfortunately, being ill, she made a mistake, and went to your rooms instead.' Indeed. Then I wish you joy, Mr. Astley. Apropos, you have reminded me of something. Were you beneath my window last night? Every moment Mademoiselle Polina kept telling me to open the window and see if you were there, after which she always smiled. Indeed. No, I was not there, but I was waiting in the corridor and walking about the hotel. She ought to see a doctor, you know, Mr. Astley. Yes, she ought. I have sent for one, and if she dies I shall hold you responsible." This surprised me. "'Pardon me,' I replied, but what do you mean?' "'Never mind. Tell me if it is true that last night you won two hundred thousand dollars.' "'No, I won a hundred thousand florins.' "'Good heavens! Then I suppose you will be off to Paris this morning?' "'Why?' "'Because all Russians who have grown rich go to Paris,' explained Astley, as though he had read the fact in a book. "'But what could I do in Paris in summer-time? I love her, Mr. Astley. Surely you know that.' "'Indeed. I am sure that you do not. Moreover, if you were to stay here you would lose everything that you possess, and have nothing left with which to pay your expenses in Paris. Well, good-bye now. I feel sure that to-day will see you gone from here.' Good-bye. But I am not going to Paris. Likewise, pardon me, what is to become of this family? I mean that the affair of the General and Mademoiselle Polina will soon be all over the town. I dare say. Yet I hardly suppose that it will break the General's heart. Moreover, Mademoiselle Polina has a perfect right to live where she chooses. In short, we may say that, as a family, this family has ceased to exist. I departed, and found myself smiling at the Englishman's strange assurance that I should soon be leaving for Paris. 
I suppose he means to shoot me in a duel, should Polina die. Yes, that is what he intends to do. Now, although I was honestly sorry for Polina, it is a fact that from the moment when, the previous night, I had approached the gaming-table, and begun to rake in the packets of banknotes, my love for her had entered upon a new plane. Yes, I can say that now, although at the time I was barely conscious of it. Was I then, at heart, a gambler? Did I, after all, love Polina not so very much? No, no. As God is my witness, I loved her. Even when I was returning home from Mr. Astley's, my suffering was genuine, and my self-reproach sincere. But presently I was to go through an exceedingly strange and ugly experience. I was proceeding to the General's rooms when I heard a door near me open, and a voice call me by name. It was Mademoiselle's mother, the widow de Comiget, who was inviting me, in her daughter's name, to enter. I did so, whereupon I heard a laugh and a little cry proceed from the bedroom—the pair occupied a suite of two apartments—where Mademoiselle Blanche was just arising. "'Ah! C'est lui! Viens donc, bête! Is it true that you have won a mountain of gold and silver? J'aimerais mieux l'or!' "'Yes,' I replied with a smile. How much? A hundred thousand florins. Be be come to a bet. Come in here, for I can't hear you where you are now. Nous ferons bonbons, n'est-ce pas? Entering her room, I found her lolling under a pink satin coverlet, and revealing a pair of swarthy, wonderfully healthy shoulders—shoulders such as one sees in dreams—shoulders covered over with a white cambric nightgown, which, trimmed with lace, stood out in striking relief against the darkness of her skin. "'Mon fils, as-tu de She cried when she saw me, and then giggled. Her laugh had always been a very cheerful one, and at times it even sounded sincere. "'Tout autre!' I began, paraphrasing Cornelia. "'See here,' she prattled on. "'Please search for my stockings, and help me to dress. Aussi, si tu n'es pas trop bête, Je te prends à Paris. I am just off, let me tell you. This moment? In half an hour. True enough, everything stood ready packed, trunks, portmanteau, and all. Coffee had long been served. Eh bien, tu verras Paris. Dis donc, qu'est-ce que c'est qu'un uchitel? Tu étais bien bête quand tu étais uchitel. Where are my stockings? Please help me to dress." And she lifted up a really ravishing foot, small, swarthy, and not misshapen like the majority of feet, which looked dainty only in bottines. I laughed, and started to draw on to the foot a silk stocking, while Mademoiselle Blanche sat on the edge of the bed and chattered. Eh bien, que feras-tu si je prends avec moi? First of all, I must have fifty thousand francs, and you shall give them to me at Frankfurt. Then we will go on to Paris, where we will live together, et je te ferai voir des étoiles en plein jour. Yes, you shall see such women as your eyes have never lit upon. Stop a moment. If I were to give you those fifty thousand francs, what should I have left for myself? Another hundred thousand francs, please to remember. Besides, I could live with you in your rooms for a month, or even for two, or even for longer, but it would not take us more than two months to get through fifty thousand francs. For look you, je suis bon enfant, et tu verras des étoiles. You may be sure. 
"'What, you mean to say that we should spend the whole in two months?' "'Certainly. Does that surprise you very much?' "'Ah, vile Slav! Why, one month of that life would be better than all your previous existence. One month, et après le déluge, mais tu ne peux comprendre. Va, away, away, you are not worth it. Ah, que fais-tu? For, while drawing on the other stocking, I had felt constrained to kiss her. Immediately she shrunk back kicked me in the face with her toes, and turned me neck and prop out of the room. Eh bien, mon uchitelle. She called after me. Je t'attends, si tu veux. I start in a quarter of an hour's time. I returned to my own room with my head in a whirl. It was not my fault that Polina had thrown a packet in my face, and preferred Mr. Astley to myself. A few banknotes were still fluttering about the floor, and I picked them up. At that moment the door opened, and the landlord appeared, a person who, until now, had never bestowed upon me so much as a glance. He had come to know if I would prefer to move to a lower floor, to a suite which had just been tenanted by Count V. For a moment I reflected. "'No!' I shouted. "'My account, please, for in ten minutes I shall be gone!' "'To Paris! To Paris!' I added to myself. Every man of birth must make her acquaintance. Within a quarter of an hour all three of us were seated in a family compartment—Mademoiselle Blanche, the widow de Comminges, and myself. Mademoiselle kept laughing hysterically as she looked at me, and Madame re-echoed her. But I did not feel so cheerful. My life had broken in two, and yesterday had infected me with a habit of staking my all upon a card. Although it might be that I had failed to win my stake, that I had lost my senses, that I desired nothing better, I felt that the scene was to be changed only for a time. Within a month from now, I kept thinking to myself, I shall be back again in Roulettenburg, and then I mean to have it out with you, Mr. Astley. Yes, as now I look back at things, I remember that I felt greatly depressed, despite the absurd gigglings of the egregious Blanche. "'What is the matter with you? How dull you are!' she cried at length, as she interrupted her laughter to take me seriously to task. "'Come, come, we are going to spend your two hundred thousand francs for you. Et tu seras heureux comme un petit roi. I myself will tie your tie for you, and introduce you to Hortense, and when we have spent your money you shall return here, and break the bank again. What did those two Jews tell you? That the thing most needed is daring, and that you possess it?' Consequently, this is not the first time that you will be hurrying to Paris with money in your pocket. Quand, moi, je veux cinquante mille francs de rente et alors. But what about the general? I interrupted. The general? You know well enough that at about this hour every day he goes to buy me a bouquet. On this occasion I took care to tell him that he must hunt for the choicest of flowers, and when he returns home the poor fellow will find the bird flown. Possibly he may take wing in pursuit, <laughs> and if so, I shall not be sorry, for he could be useful to me in Paris, and Mr. Astley will pay his debts here. In this manner did I depart for the gay city. End of chapter 15 Recording by Bill Borst